Welcome to the Resurrection Church Podcast. Resurrection Church exists for the glory of God and the joy of His people. If you're looking for a church in the upstate of South Carolina, please join us at 9 and 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings at 900 North Main Street in Greer, South Carolina. We pray you'll be blessed by this message. We're going to continue to study in the Word. We're in Philippians. We're It's not a mistake. I'm reading the same text I read last week. Bradley is continuing in Philippians 3, 1 to 11, if you would turn with me there. So much here, just felt like we couldn't run past it. Had to sit a little longer. Philippians 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all this morning. You believe in miracles? Yeah, I I figured I'd get a decent amen there. Um, Not all Christians think about the miraculous or the supernatural or God's power at work now. Um, But here's the reality. If you are a Christian, you have experienced a miracle. And you are experiencing a miracle. What miracle? It's the miracle that you and I, as believers in Christ, we have been miraculously, supernaturally raised from spiritual death into new life in Christ. And, And that, I don't know, I hope that doesn't sound like old information to you, like, oh yeah, I know that. No, no, no. A miracle has occurred that was initiated by sovereign grace, okay? That, that, that's just the reality. You know, people don't just up and decide they want to be saved. 
God's grace awakens saving faith in God's people. Our hearts of stone are taken out. Uh, A new soft heart is put in. God causes us to be born again, 1 Peter chapter 1, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. A miracle occurs and everything changes, right? Everything changes. Now, because of God's gracious and supernatural work in us as Christians, we have a spiritual consciousness that's been gifted to us that enables us to behold the surpassing worth of Christ. It's a miracle. It's a miracle that our eyes have been opened, that where we were once hard and complacent and indifferent, we are now awakened to the reality of the surpassing worth of Christ that Paul says leads him to count everything else as rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of Christ. And we're smart enough to know something. You know, you, you all amen that, and I think you believe that. That's what's happened. There's a miracle. You see the surpassing worth of Christ and, and, and you're smart enough to know, I'm smart enough to know that when I have what is most valuable, I have great joy, yeah. right? But yet, as the great hymn says, our hearts are prone to wonder. Here's here, 20 plus years of pastoral ministry, all right? And there's a conclusion that I've come to about us. And, you know, there, there are a few things that I know. Not, not many things, a few things that I think I have my head around, and I've come to a conclusion about us, about Christians, okay? And, and are you ready to, to know this conclusion? I, I mean, bear with me, because it might sting a little bit at first, and I don't mean it to sound harsh and mean. We are delusional. We're delusional. We know that when we have what is most valuable, we have great joy. And we know that in the natural sense, right? Like if you, you value your health, right? And, and, and when you're healthy, you have joy. And yet we still sit on the couch with a bag of potato chips and go through the whole thing instead of, you with me? But in the spiritual our eyes have been opened to the surpassing worth of Christ and we know that he is most valuable and we know that when we have what is most valuable, we have great joy and yet we still find ourselves like Esau who sold his birthright in a moment of severe hunger for a bowl of soup. This is our weak flesh. This is the, the, the weak flesh, the, you know, the, the part of us that is decaying and wasting away that remains for now. It's, it's decaying, it's wasting away, but inwardly we're still being made new day by day. And yet we find ourselves in this great struggle to keep our focus on what we know and what we're now by God's grace and the power of his spirit able to see is most valuable. Keep our focus there and not settle for lesser, lesser treasures and thus have less joy. Tracking? That's why Paul says this, verse seven and eight again of chapter three. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss 
for the sake of Christ. So here's what happened for Paul and here's what's happened for all of us. God's grace awakened saving faith in us because of the miracle he performs. We are, our eyes and ears spiritually are now open to see the surpassing worth of Christ. We behold that worth and we count. It's a, the, the tense of that Greek word is it's a, it's a settled conclusion that has an enduring effect. That's true of us, right? There's been a settled conclusion in your mind and my mind that nothing's worth comparing to Christ. That's settled, right? There's no question there. And that's a work of God's grace and his spirit. So that's the past. And then verse eight, indeed I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So there's this ongoing counting. He counted, past settled conclusion with an enduring effect, and there's this ongoing counting, this ongoing reckoning, this ongoing comparison that Paul is doing of the worth of Christ to everything else, and he keeps coming to the same settled conclusion. There's nothing, nothing that compares to Christ. When I have what is most valuable, I have great joy. Why does Paul keep doing this counting? If it's a settled conclusion that nothing is worth comparing to Christ, why does he keep coming back to this counting? Certainly, like Paul, like us, Paul's heart is prone to wonder as well. But here's the answer I think he gives in the beginning of verse 10. That I may know him. That I may know him. Right? It's like, is that merely an intellectual knowing? No, you know it's not right? It's like if somebody were to tell you that honey is sweet, and you're like, well, how do you know honey is sweet? Well, I read about it in a book. Versus you've tasted it. Your lips have tasted the sweetness of honey, and so you know it's sweet. Paul's not talking about a mere intellectual knowing. He's talking about an ongoing tasting that he's having with the surpassing worth of Christ that fuels his joy, fuels his life, and fuels him to keep counting Everything else is loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Here's my question. What's it like if we're not talking about a mere intellectual knowing? As if we study this book in order to know information about Jesus and let that information then drive the rest of our life. If there's actually an experiential element to this knowing, what's that like? You know, one of the things that I'm so committed to and our elders are so committed to here at Resurrection Church is making sure that we understand this thing we call Christianity, it is in its essence an experiential relationship with the living God. An ongoing experience of his power and his presence. We're not after mere head knowledge here. We're not here, we're not pursuing biblical truth simply because we want to know the information. As if the difference between us and the unbeliever is that we've got the right information. 
It's not less than that. It's more than that, though. We have an experiential kind of relationship with the living God, and that's what is driving Paul, that I may know him, not just in my head, but experience him. What's that like, Paul? Pick up in verse 9. Paul says that I may know that I may gain Christ. I count, I do this continual counting that I may gain Christ, verse 9, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. I doubt there's any of us in this room that could laud such a spiritual resume as the Apostle Paul. His religious pedigree is arguably unmatched. And here's what he says. It's rubbish compared to knowing Christ, right? And what he lauds in verse 9, and he's, he's going somewhere, is he lauds what is the essence of our justification as Christians. And this is something that's really good for us to rehearse. You might feel like you know this or have your head around this, but let's rehearse it with the Apostle Paul. He says, be found in him. You didn't find the Lord. The Lord found you, right? To be found in him means what? It means exactly what I've already said, that by God's sovereign grace and the power of his spirit, we are brought from death to life. Sovereign grace always precedes saving faith. And with that faith that God gives us, Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And and Paul calls faith in Ephesians a gift from God so that no man can boast. We can't even boast in our dependence because it's a gift from God. And with that faith, that gift of faith, also comes the gift of Christ's righteousness. You know, I've said this before, and I think it's, it's a really simple way to understand what the technical term would be imputed righteousness, is that God treated Christ on the cross as if Christ had lived our life in order that he might treat us as though we had lived Christ's life. He was perfectly sinless, perfectly righteous, only and always did what his father wanted him to do. He batted a thousand, lived a sinless life, and now we get credit for it. How do we get credit for it? By faith. How do we believe by God's power? That's why we say salvation is a divine accomplishment, not a human achievement, right? We boast in Christ. We boast in God's work in us, right? What has Paul already said? We work out our salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who works in, right? He's worked in us. He's taken out our heart of stone. He's put in the heart of flesh. He's given us faith. And and by that faith, through that faith that is preceded by saving grace, we now get the gift of Christ's righteousness. That's our justification. That's how God, Paul says in Romans, can be both just and justifier. How in the world can he justify sinners? Because he poured out his wrath on his son. I hope that doesn't sound so familiar to you that it's like, oh yeah, that's cool. No. He poured out his wrath on his son, the wrath that we deserved. And he justifies us by his grace through faith with the gift of Christ's righteousness. That's our justification. And here's the thing. 
I don't think that's Paul's main emphasis. Is justification a big deal? You better believe it's a big deal, right? But Paul is not lauding the gift of righteousness here. He's not lauding being found in Christ simply because he's glad that he has been provided a way to escape God's wrath and judgment. That's not the primary or the root of his joy. That's a part of it, right? Certainly we should be glad that by God's grace, through faith in Christ and the gift of Christ's righteousness, the wrath of God has been removed from us. But you know what? Sadly, a lot of Christians never get beyond realizing or or thinking as though being saved means I escape punishment. Like that's it. I've been given mercy, and now I won't go to hell. And now let me spend the rest of my life trying to stay as comfortable as I can. Let me do everything I can to try to preserve the quality of my life on this side of eternity as I see fit and somehow try to hang on to this eternal insurance that I've now gained through Christ. I've escaped punishment. That's where it stops, but not for Paul. Paul's joy is not merely that he's escaped wrath. That's a big deal. Please don't hear me minimize that. His joy is more than that. Okay? You could really draw a straight line in Philippians 3. Jonathan pointed this out to me, and I thought it was really helpful. You could draw a straight line from the end of verse 3 right to verse 10. Let's look at that. Look at Philippians 3, verse 3. For we are the circumcision. All right? I talked about this last week. That just screams to me something has happened to us in salvation. We didn't do something for ourselves. We are the, the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus excuse me, in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Insert a really big parenthesis. Where Paul, inside that parenthesis, he talks about, if anybody has reason to boast in the flesh, it's me. If you want to compare religious pedigree, let's go. I've got plenty. But I count all of that as loss or rubbish for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ and being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, close parentheses, verse 10, that. So that, so that what? That I may know him. What's driving Paul? I want nothing more than to know Christ. And not just in an intellectual kind of way, but an experiential kind of way. What does that look like, Paul? That I may know him, oh, this is, and the power of his resurrection, that sounds good, right? And may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, oh, 
And by any means possible, I attain the resurrection from the dead. Okay, we got better. What's it like to know Christ? What's it like to count everything else as loss, being found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own? I've been, I was once a child of wrath, now I'm a child of God. And then to lean into this life where I want nothing more than to know Christ in an experiential kind of way. What's that like? First thing Paul says is I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. I think Paul was crystal clear on this right here. The Christian life is a life of power. It is in of itself an experience of power. We are saved by God's power. The Christian life begins with resurrection power and it's lived out in resurrection power. We don't do this in our own strength. There is this ongoing miracle, this ongoing experience of supernatural power at work in us, right? Right? God is able to do exceedingly more abundantly than all we could think of ask according to the power at work in us. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, the Bible says, lives in us. Right? Like there is this supernatural experience of power that Paul does not regulate to some point in the future after his death. This is resurrection power now. And that sounds awesome, right? But look what he couples it with. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share, that word is koinonia, fellowship in his sufferings. Does that seem odd to anybody? Like you would think if the Christian life is an experience of resurrection power, that that power would be something that actually helps us avoid suffering. That's how we think as Americans. The more power you have, the less you suffer. The more money you have, the less you suffer. So if there's this great power, and this is what, sadly, gets taught a lot in the church. It may not be as blatant as this all the time, but in some way or another, it gets presented this way. Come to Jesus, and your life's just going to get more comfortable. Surrender to Jesus and God's power is going to be at work to keep you from suffering, to keep you from pain, to keep you from struggle, because aren't we overcomers? Aren't we overcomers? Aren't we we more than conquerors? Yes. Yes, we are. So why does Paul couple this experiential knowing of Christ in the power of his resurrection with the fellowship of his sufferings. The essence of the Christian life, see if you agree with this, the essence of the Christian life is sharing Christ's life. Living a life like his life. Living his kind of life. That, you agree with that? Yep. What kind of life did Christ live? Was it not a life of power and suffering? 
how close do you want to be to Jesus? I mean, I'm, I'm okay if, if we're here this morning, we're like, I need to think about that. Like, let, let, let's pause and let's, let's, let's consider. Do, do we want a relationship with the living God because we want some supplemental peace, some supplemental joy, some supplemental provision, some supplemental help and encouragement on this side that's also followed by a guarantee that we'll spend eternity in heaven and not hell. Is that, is that what we want? Or would we, by the Spirit, by God's grace, would our minds and hearts be open to, I want to know him. I, I've considered everything that's of worth before me. And I've compared that to Christ. And I've come to this conclusion, not in my own strength, not in my own wisdom, but I've come to this conclusion. There's nothing more valuable than him. And if God, by his, shall we say, general grace has made and created us with the ability to go to conclude this too. When I have what is most valuable, I have great joy. Like, could we imagine leaning into a life that is a life like Christ live? Not because we're trying to merit something, but because we want intimacy with him. We want such close fellowship with him that we're, our longing and our desire is to not just try to look like him, but to actually experience the sharing of his life, which he's living in us. And if it's his kind of life, I don't know how you read the gospels and conclude anything else than it is a life of both power and suffering. He lived that kind of life. And Paul's told us that. Chapter 2, verse 5 and 8, through 5 through 8 of Philippians. Have this mind, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And, and can I just point out, when Paul gives that instruction to have this mind, you remember what he's talking about, right? He's talking about having such a solid ironclad unity that is demonstrated in we humbly put the interest of others ahead of our own. We count others as more significant than ourselves, right? And his call, we looked at this, his call was to consider that kind of life by considering the kind of life that Christ lived. Have this mind, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of what? Death. Even death on the cross. Christ's life is a life of power, it is a life of suffering, and it is a life of death. And so Paul adds, I want to know him, not just intellectually, but I want to experientially know Christ in the power of his resurrection, the sharing or the fellowship of his sufferings, 
becoming like him in his death. What does he mean by that? If you zoom out and you consider the death of Christ, the life and the death of Christ, what was it in its essence? I don't think Paul is saying he expects to die a kind of death that is as effectual and significant as Christ's death. No, right? Christ was the once for all sacrifice for God's people, right? So what does Paul mean by becoming like him in his death? I think Jesus' death, his life and death in essence was, and and I'm using this unashamedly, for the glory of God and the joy of God's people. Isn't it interesting that Paul would say, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection, sharing in his sufferings and become like him in his death. I want my life to be completely poured out for his sake, for the glory of God and the joy of God's people. And he's already told us this. Look at these on the screen, just for sake of time. Chapter one, verse 20, Philippians, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And on the way to becoming like him in his death, Verse 15 of chapter one. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry. There were some guys trying to upstage Paul, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Verse 17 of chapter 2. Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. What kind of life is Paul living? It's a life of power. It's a life of suffering. And his longing is to be poured out unto death for the glory of God and for the joy of his people and his motivation in all of that. It's not the accolades of men It's not the prestige of his ministry. It's not about him. Because what did he say? We've quoted this a few times. Galatians chapter two, verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He's leaning into the life of Christ, that Christ is living in him, a life of power, a life of suffering, and a life where Paul joyfully, joyfully longs to be poured out unto death. Folks, this is what we get to experience. Like, think about it when it comes to the instructions Paul has given to count others more significantly than yourselves, humbly put the interest of others ahead of your own, and do all of that without grumbling and complaining. Is there suffering in that? Yes! There's suffering in that because I want to think about me. And when I don't get to think about me, I want to complain about it. This is very simple, but it's not insignificant. We, remember, we talked about this. Live others focused for the joy of it. And here's the thing. I think we taste a unique kind of joy 
just in the act of being others-focused and putting their interest ahead of our own. But what if we had a more biblically-informed, biblically-rich expectation when it comes to something as simple as counting others more significant than myself? What if I realized, A, I can't do that in my own strength? Like, what if there's resurrection power at work in me that's available to me, even in something as seemingly simple as counting others more significant than myself? What if I could know Christ in a deeper, richer way in the power of his resurrection when I do that? And what if, as I do that and I, I suffer the pain of setting aside my self-interest in order to attend to the interest of others, what if there's a greater intimacy with Christ to be had in doing that because I know I'm leaning in to a life like his kind of life of both power and suffering? And what if we could be so captured by the joy of sharing in Christ's kind of life that we could be like those that are mentioned in Revelation chapter 12 who love not their lives even unto death? What if that kind of joy, remember he mentioned Epaphroditus who almost died, almost died trying to get an offering from Philippi to Paul in prison in Rome. And what seems to be obvious is that guys like Epaphroditus, guys like Paul, they live their lives being poured out in this way for the joy of it. And yes, there is joy in simply counting others more significant than yourselves. I think unbelievers taste that. The, the, the unbelieving world is not void of charity. But their experience is the shallow end of the pool at best. Because as believers, we get to live, we get to lean in to an others-focused kind of life. We get to lean in to a life of suffering. We get to lean in to a life of power. We get to a lean in to a kind of life where we, dare I say, we're not only not afraid of death, but we might even welcome it. Because to depart and be with Christ is far better. That we get to lean into that kind of life for the joy of knowing Christ in an experiential kind of way. For the joy of experiencing greater intimacy with him in and through sharing in a life like his. I mean, when we serve, what did Jesus say? Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Even the son of man came not to serve, be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Why do you serve? I want to know him. When we disciple others, 
Colossians chapter one, verse 28 and 29. How many of you are discipling someone like on one-on-one consistent basis? Raise your hand if you've got people in, that the Lord's just given you. Raise your hand. How many of you? Come on, hold them up high so everybody can see. You're discipling people, right? We don't do that in our own strength. 128 to 29. Him we proclaim, Paul says, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's a daunting goal. Verse 29, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. I want to know him in the power of his resurrection. I want to I want to share in that power. I want to experience that power. What's one of the ways you do that? Disciple others. What about when we suffer? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What if we could suffer? Nobody likes pain. Nobody likes suffering. We're not masochists. But Stephen read at the beginning of the service, God tests us and and proves the faith that he's given us through suffering. Like if you have... If you've read your Bible enough, you, you, you understand nothing happens except by God's sovereign plan. And could it be that through suffering, we come to know Christ experientially in a deeper and richer way, and in that we have joy. And then when death comes, verse 11 of Philippians 3, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. To depart and be with Christ, Paul said back in chapter one, is better. Do you want to know him? I want to know him. Not just know things about him. I heard a story one time of two great scholars, pastors, we're doing a conference together. R.C. Sproul and um, John Piper. And Sproul put a chair on the stage to talk about, to, to illustrate what it means to have faith in Christ. And when you sit down in a chair, all of your weight, all of your confidence is put in that chair, right? Like you're doing it right now. And, and, and he broke it down a lot more more beautifully than I just did. That's just kind of the simple point he was making is that faith kind of works like this is all of our trust, all of our confidence is put in Christ. And that's what it means to be a Christian. And Piper was scheduled to speak right after him. And he came up and he grabbed the chair again. And he said, yes to everything Dr. Sproul just said. But here's the other essence of what it means to be a Christian is that you got to love the chair. You love the chair. You don't just put confidence in the chair you love the chair. And what I see is Paul, yes, he's got confidence in Christ. He has certainty that the God who began a good work in him is going to be faithful to complete it. But he's also, by God's grace and the power of the Spirit, 
become so enthralled with the surpassing worth of Christ, he wants nothing more than to know him. And that knowing includes power like unto his resurrection. It includes sharing and fellowshipping in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and living with this longing that, you know what? My energy and my effort is not primarily directed toward trying to preserve my life or make it as comfortable as I possibly can. We do that, don't we? I don't think that's entirely wicked. But I do think that Paul's inspired words here are calling us to think a little bit differently, maybe a lot differently. The trajectory of my life is him. All I want is him. Everything else is lost. Everything else is rubbish compared to knowing him. And I experience him in power. I experience him in suffering. And I'll experience him even in death. And death will only give way to seeing him face to face. Amen? We're going to come to the Lord's table. Let's stand together. Lord, I pray that as we come to your table this morning, long to experience you. The symbol of the bread and the wine is not it's not all that we're after. That's part of it. But we're also longing to experience you and your power and presence and to taste Lord in this act of worship the share that we have in your life where it's no longer we who live. It's our faith, increase our hope, increase our expectation of an experiential kind of relationship with you. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you've been blessed by this message from Resurrection Church. Please visit resfaith.com. That's R-E-Z faith.com where you can find more sermon archives, learn more about our church, and find a place to give to our ministry. We'd be glad to hear from you. Drop us an email at connect at resfaith.com dot com.